Luke chapter 2. This should sound familiar to you. Beginning in verse, uh, actually, I just realized I put the wrong references up there. We're, we're beginning in verse 1, right? Uh, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I just got to tell you, I know we read this story every year, uh, but the more you learn about the story, the more you realize every word in this narrative is just dripping with meaning. That he went up to the city of David and everyone would have thought that was Jerusalem. But it wasn't. It was Bethlehem. It was backwater Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, which would have been a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the inn. It's really more like a guest room. It was, there was, I hate to break your bubble, there was no innkeeper that turned them away. It was a guest house that was full. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This is our focus today. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. Everybody. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. So, when we think about Christmas, we think things like it's not Christmas without, right? We have Christmas traditions. That's actually a fun part of Christmas. Uh, as a young pastor, I would rail, I railed against a lot of things. I had no idea what I was doing, right? I was just angry about things, and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't, and let me tell you about Santa Claus and Christmas trees, and traditions are great. That's the point of Christmas. The point of Christmas is your kids should have a little twinkle in their eye. Um, they should uh, be paying attention to what's going on. We should sing these, you know, we should sing these uh, Christmas carols together. We should enjoy family and we should enjoy uh, Christmas Eve services, which we're going to do together. Uh, we're going to talk at the end today about how we're going to go caroling this year. We're going to carol in the community here. Uh, that's fun, right? It, this is a part of Christmas. Uh, but Christmas should also, there should be some, some qualities that are present if we're really going to be faithful to. I, you know, I'm not, on a, I'm not on a holy crusade against Santa Claus. Uh, but I think if you're not careful, you miss the point, the original real point of Christmas and of the Christmas story. We have to be careful that all these things that by themselves are not uh, bad, uh, if we're not careful, we become distracted from the original point, the original design of the Christmas story. It's not Christmas without your favorite dessert and without a Christmas tree for sure. 
Uh, it's also not Christmas without presence, without practicing presence, the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, a, that is a huge part of the Christmas story. It's really the driving force of the Christmas story. That was last week. Uh, today we're going to talk about inclusion and acceptance. Because believe it or not, that's actually a key part of the Christmas story. Um, peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. Listen, he had no reason to be pleased with us. Right? But he was anyway, this inclusion. And then next week we'll talk about freedom. And then on Christmas Eve we'll talk about hope. Christmas, the Christmas story, the Christmas tradition, uh, the, the spirit of Christmas really involves us experiencing all of these things, presence and inclusion and freedom and hope. And as I mentioned today, uh, our theme song will wrap, wrap back around to this, circle back around to this at the end, uh, is God rest you merry gentlemen. Uh, it's, it, you know, that the, the, the angel appeared to shepherds, which is part of the story, and again, I think because we've all heard this story literally since we were born, we just think it's normal. Well, of course, that's how the story goes. Right, it wasn't normal. This was, this was an outlier. These men were, in fact, they were literally outliers. They were on the outskirts. They were out on the edges. And yet, we know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. We could all tell stories that way. Some of us feel that way kind of naturally. I'm, I'm kind of one of those people, right? It just feels like I'm often on the outside looking in. I'm try, not trying to make you feel bad. I'm saying introverts often feel that way, right? Extroverts don't. And some of you who are extroverts, you think, I have, you, you think I'm speaking a foreign language right now. Why would anybody ever feel that way? And yet the truth is we could all tell a story where we felt like we were on the outside looking in. It stinks to be excluded. It stinks to be excluded. And the truth of it is, with exclusion, along with it, comes this idea of insignificance. If we've been excluded, then we must be insignificant. Which is not true, and yet the narrative in our minds that we so often go back to, we go back to that. I was reminded just a couple weeks ago, uh, at the end of November, uh, was the anniversary of C.S. Lewis' death. C.S. Lewis, a titan of 20th century Christianity. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, the school that my kids attend is literally comes from that story, right? The name of it. it and such a great... And, and man, I could just go on and on about C.S. Lewis. So often with new believers, when they come to me as a pastor and they say, like, do you have something I could read to help me understand what Christianity is about? I, I steer them straight to mere Christianity. Such an incredible book. Incredible. And yet when he died... Nobody noticed. You know why? Because he died on November 22nd, 1963, and someone else died that day. Do you remember? JFK, right? But nobody says, where were you when C.S. Lewis died? You can be C.S. Lewis and still be excluded. But somehow, for you and for me, exclusion makes us feel insignificant. Because, listen, you and I want to matter. We want to know that we matter. By the way, that, does, that core thing inside of you that makes you want to feel like you matter, that's not evil. 
That's not sinful. That's not bad. That's not prideful. Now, you can pursue mattering and significance in some prideful ways, can't you? You can pursue it in some sinful ways. But that thing inside of you that makes you want to feel significant, that's being human. By the way, there's some theology behind that. Even if you're not a church person or a Bible person, there's still theology behind it. You're a theologian whether you realize it or not. And we want to feel significant. For my money, one of the most overlooked elements of the Christmas narrative is this story in Luke 2. One of the most, if you'll pardon me for saying so, I think it's the right term. One of the most absurd storylines in the Christmas narrative that we miss is that Jesus' birth announcement came to shepherds. What a wild idea. And of course you and I think that way, right? And it's easy for us now to look back and see the thread, right? Which we'll unpack in just a second. The thread of of how important it was to be a shepherd and all the imagery that's involved. But at the time, this was radical. And by the way, when we talk about the announcement, we usually focus on the angels. Which, hey, by the way, just... Good thing to remember. Generally in the Bible, when, like in a narrative in the Bible, when someone tells someone else, fear not, it's because they're afraid. And I bet they were afraid, right? You're on the backside of nowhere. It's dark. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. Yeah, I'd be scared too. Fear not. But don't miss in the narrative, not just who showed up, but who they showed up to And more specifically, and this is what we're going to unpack over the next few minutes, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this story that actually carries down through the 2,000 years since this happened, and it carries right into your life, and it carries right into my life? What are the principles? What are the observations that we can learn? Well, the first one in your notes is that we don't receive the kingdom through achievement or power. We don't receive the kingdom of God through achievement or through power. And this is illustrated to us because of the shepherds. They were not achievers. They were not powerful. Listen, they had no prestige. They had no connections. I'm continually amazed at American culture And how badly we want heroes. We'll turn anyone and everyone into a hero. By the way, it's not wrong to be a hero. But we set people up as celebrity and worship them so fast. We do it in Christian circles too, you know. Makes me want to vomit. We're following a homeless carpenter here. There's no celebrity? Give me a break. That's not the story of Christianity. And it's illustrated right here. Achievement or power is not what the kingdom of God is about. And here's what I would say. Listen, think with me for just a second. This is an odd exercise, but I want to ask you to do it with me. Mentally, I want you to go with me. Who would you have guessed? Pretend that this story hasn't happened. Pretend that you and I are there in the moment and we're just kind of observing, right? We're just on the outside looking in. But but we're watching the story unfold and you and I are present 
And I tell you, they're going to announce the Christ. An angel is going to show up and he's going to announce the Christ and there's going to be, you know, lights and all this stuff's going to happen. This is an announcement, listen, with really strong political implications and really strong religious implications. Look at me. Now, if you didn't know any better and I told you that, who would you think the announcement was going to go to? Well, probably political leaders or religious leaders, right? Maybe God's going to get the political and religious leaders together in the same room, and that's who the angel shows up to. Mm -mm. That's not what happened at all. In verse 1, in those days a decree went out, right? A decree went out, which literally in the Greek is a dogma. You know what a dogma is? This is a pronouncement from on high that says, don't question it, just do it. This is the decree that goes out. This is not up for discussion. It's kind of like when you and I get a letter from the IRS. I'm serious. We grumble, and then we do what they tell us to do, don't we? That's kind of how it goes, right? I don't like it, but here it is. This decree goes out that all the world should be registered. We know this is going to be inconvenient for you. We don't care. Why? Because we hold the power and we hold the prestige. This is what government does. Not just American government, all government. Listen. These extremely powerful people, the religious leaders and the political leaders, were overlooked, and they were helpless. There's nothing they could do about being overlooked, which is a great illustration for you and I, a great reminder for you and I of who actually holds the power. God announces what he wants to announce, who he wants to announce it to. And the most powerful people on the planet aren't actually in charge. They just think they are. God does always as he pleases and only as he pleases. And he doesn't actually ask anyone for permission. He just does it. And yet, as I said before, you and I can look back now, and it's the benefit of, you know, the chronological place that we fall in the story. We can look back and see the story arc of the shepherd, right? We know that it wasn't unheard of that a shepherd would be involved in, a, in a, a religious story, in a spiritual story. The greatest king in Israel's existence was David. The shepherd king, the shepherd boy. In Psalm 77, you have this imagery, Psalm 77, 70. This imagery is used of God. You led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. So you have the shepherd king, you have God portrayed as a shepherd, and definitely the idea of the lowly receiving favor is echoed just a few verses prior to this in Luke chapter 1. The announcement, the, the, the song that Mary sings when she learns the story is going to go down, the way it's going to go down, and she's going to have the privilege of carrying this child and giving birth to this child who's the Son of God. And she sings what we now know as the Magnificat, right? 
This is a line in Luke 152. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of what? Humble estate. That's most of us in this room. And our tendency is to think there's something wrong with us because we're of humble estate. Our tendency, our temptation, is to believe that because we're of humble estate, we are insignificant. That's what celebrity will tell you. That's what Christian celebrity will tell you. That's not the narrative of the gospel. That's not what the Christmas story teaches us. And by the way, I think we have a tendency to romanticize these shepherds that get this announcement because there is certainly spiritual truth around shepherds and shepherding people. And I mean, our elders, talk, this, is, this is one of the most common words in our elders' meetings is shepherding. How do we shepherd well? We want to shepherd people well. That's, that's great. This is a very spiritual idea. But these shepherds, if we romanticize them too much, we miss the point. I think I gave you a quote. Did I give you a Robert Stein quote? This should be in your notes. Okay. Um, and I think I have a slide up here. If not, just listen along. You're learning quickly that slides and notes come straight from me, so if they're not right, all complaints can come right to me. You can email complaint at capcitytopeka.org. <laughs> not an actual email address. <laughs> but if it makes you feel better to type it out and send it, send it twice. <laughs> not because I won't listen, but because I know, right? Here we go, Robert Stein. One should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean. See if this doesn't sound like you and I and our neighbors. <laughs> Come on. They're dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of good news. What a gospel illustration. Can you imagine? I'm totally making this up, right? I have no verses for this. But God tells the angel, go down and announce it. The angel says, okay, who am I going to? Well, there's like four guys out in the countryside. <laughs> you sure? Are you sure that's who I'm supposed to go talk to? Listen. And God says, that's who he's going for. The outcast and the insignificant. They also, by the way, were not related to Jesus in any way. I mean, they literally have no relation to the story. If you're not going to go to the political leaders and the religious leaders, wouldn't you want to like go to his family? Tell them? Nope. Because as we watch unfold in the ministry of Jesus, he makes the outcast his family. That's why you and I are sitting here. Because the outcasts get defined significance, not by the world's standards, but because the God of the universe declares it to be so. 
we get to find this significance. It's interesting when you, when you look at, when you compare the birth of Jesus with the birth of John, John the baptizer, which we see, you know, just the chapter before. There's an announcement to someone. There's a birth. There are all these things happening. There are two storylines that are juxtaposed really nicely together. And yet, John's birth announcement really brought a local response. It was neighbors and relatives. That's okay. That's how births work, right? Jesus' birth announcement brought a universal and a cosmic response. It was by nature wider. There were angels and shepherds and people who had traveled for weeks and months to get there. This is an important idea. Receiving the kingdom is not about achievement or power. We also don't receive the kingdom, second observation, through wealth or through status. We don't receive the kingdom through wealth or through status. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. The temptation for you and I is to say, I'm just a regular person. I don't have very much to offer. Okay? I don't think it's an exaggeration. I think it's actually faithful to the historical context of this story to say this. In their culture, shepherds would have been regarded as blue-collar workers. By nature, they hired themselves, themselves out to other people. They likely had maybe some small land holdings, but those land holdings were not enough for them to provide for their families, to, to have the agricultural pursuits where they were trying to do to make a living, right? And then to suffer under Roman taxation. All the obligations that they had, what little bit of land they may have owned wouldn't have been enough. And so, they got out and hustled. They did hard physical labor. They had no wealth. Their humble circumstances positioned them to appreciate the magnitude of this news. This is in your notes. Their humble circumstances positioned them to appreciate the magnitude of this news. It is not an accident. God appeared to the humble, to those who felt like they had nothing to offer. Because if you feel like you have something to offer, then you don't need to hear from God. If your hope is in yourself... You don't need God to bring you hope. And when you hear that God has brought you hope, you're not desperate for it. Think about the Beatitudes, right? Listen. And by the way, I mentioned earlier American culture. It's really just human culture. It's every culture. Every culture worships power and achievement and status and the strong eat the weak and the rich own the poor. This is the human condition. 
And in that context, I want you to think about the Beatitudes. Remember how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Could I just say for you, the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek aren't usually found in palaces. They're not often found in the White House, right? Or in the Capitol. Maybe we'd be better off if they were. These are the values of the kingdom. In a culture that celebrates achievement, there's no question that there are some of us in this room right now, or some of us who are watching online, who are naturally wired to be achievers. We're trying to climb those ladders, right? Please hear this. If that's you, please hear this. The problem with being an achiever, if we're not careful, is that we're often too busy noticing ourselves to notice Jesus. I know this stinks, but I'm telling you this as a recovering achiever. <laughs> so if you don't like it, the line starts behind me because I don't like it either. And if it's tough to swallow, I've been trying to swallow it for 25 or 30 years now, and there's no getting around this. If we place our hope in achievement, then ultimately it's a recipe for us to place our faith in ourselves. Could I just share this with you? Because it's been a little tense in here. I'm just telling you it's about to get really tense. <laughs> We're going to read some verses that I believe are some of the most haunting verses in the New Testament. Because you've heard them before and we skip right past them. We skip right past them or we try to explain them away. Please listen, look at me. For just a minute, when I start reading these verses, you're gonna, most of you are going to recognize them. For just a minute, pretend that you've never heard them before and take them at face value. Are you ready? Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty... Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't say it's impossible, by the way. Just says it's hard. Here's the juxtaposition. Listen. In the course of human history and the different contexts that people have lived and existed and societies have conducted themselves, in the grand scheme of things, 100% of the people in this room are rich. Most of us are going to walk out, and before we get in our car, we're going to say something like, what do you want to eat? We don't wonder. Most of us aren't concerned with where we're going to sleep tonight. Most of us need to clean out our closets, right? Because we have too many clothes. I don't even have very many clothes, but I have too many clothes. It's time to clean them out, man. I'm not trying to make you feel evil or guilty. But I think one of the most effective weapons that your spiritual enemy, the devil, can use against you is to place an obstacle in front of you 
without letting you know that it's there. It's not impossible. It's just difficult. The power struggle between the rival kings, God and money. The old King James was God and mammon, right? You can't serve God and money. The power struggle between these rival kings, God and money, allows no divided allegiance. You will be forced to choose. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of all your money. But you will be asked to choose. Listen, and you will be asked to choose repeatedly, day after day after day. What are you going to put your faith in? The next time that happens, it's going to happen to you this week. You may not realize it. Again, this is the subtlety of spiritual attack. The most effective weapon, spiritual weapons of spiritual warfare against you is for you to not know there's a war going on. That's a great recipe for losing the war, isn't it? To not know you're in a war. And when you feel the temptation to put your hope in money, remember these shepherds. This is who the gospel shows up to. Going back with Jesus to Matthew 19. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Could I just say to you exegetically, there have been so many explanations about this over the years. Could I just say to you, it's a real needle and a real camel. Literally. Ooh. And we don't, we're not going to read the rest of the passage, but immediately the disciples say, whoa, how could it even happen? That sounds impossible. And Jesus says, well, with God, all things are possible. But we have to overcome this obstacle of putting our hope in wealth. Because when we have wealth, our tendency is to say, quoting the Puritans, look what my hand hath wrought. Look at what I produced. My barns are full, I'll build bigger ones. And God says, you fool. You're not a fool because you have barns or because you need bigger barns. You're a fool because that's where your hope was. Embracing our humility is the way of Christ. Listen, we're, we're landing the plane here. We're talking about power and prestige. We're talking about money and wealth. These are not the recipes for the kingdom. This is not how you inherit the kingdom. In fact, if you put your hope in either of those things, you've placed yourself in a position to miss the kingdom. We embrace our humility. This is the way of Christ. Listen, when you've lost all hope in yourself, not that you're a horrible person, right? But you, I don't have any hope in me anymore. Because I've seen me. I look at the confession that Kyle just led us through, right? It's discouraging and true. <laughs> it's discouraging because, because that's my life. I've seen too much of me to have any hope in me. And here's what I know. You're just like me. So I don't have any hope in me. And I also don't have any hope in you. Our only hope in the God of the universe. And it just so happens that he reached out to us first. 
And he said, you're significant because I say so. Paul models this in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There were some sprinkled in there. But that's not what this was about. But God chose. It was His volition. It was His will. And it was His prerogative. And by the way, I would remind you, He's smarter than you are. So he's up to something that you and I may not understand. And on the surface, it might not make sense. And you and I might say, God, I don't know if I would have chose those people. Mm-hmm. And God says, hush, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the, shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? 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 Why would God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Every time we come face to face with God, our only hope is to say, I plead Jesus Christ. I don't deserve anything. God, I don't think I was a good catch for you. I don't think you had some strategic plan where you wanted my mind or my education or my wealth or how much I own, all the influence that I have, my network. God, I don't think you chose me because of how many contacts I have in my phone, who I have access to. I am also an outlier. I'm a next door neighbor to the shepherd who's on the outskirts, who's on the fringes, who deserves nothing. And yet God shows up. You know what I find fascinating about this story? Is that the angels did not announce Jesus by name. Go back and read Luke 2. The announcement never includes the name Jesus. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is... Christ, the anointed one. Listen, the Christ is the one we've all been waiting for. The one who's going to bring hope. The one who's going to bring healing. He's the Savior. I had initially this whole unpacking of Ezekiel 34. There's this fantastic prophecy about God as the shepherd, right? But we'll read just one verse. Time forced me to cut it back. So here we go, one verse. God, the great shepherd, says, I will seek who? Not the powerful. Here's the thing, listen, look at me. You can actually be powerful and be lost. You can be wealthy and be lost. You can be well-connected and be lost. You're just less likely to realize it, right? And that's why it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or for a powerful person. If you're impressed with yourself, then you're not going to realize that you're lost. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. 
If we were all brave enough, I would ask us to raise our hand if we're not injured, because that would be easier. And I would imagine that if we're all honest, nobody's raising their hand. We're all injured. And God comes for us. The great shepherd comes to find us. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Is he coming after fat people? In the Old Testament, the idea of fat involved blessing. Nobody had enough food to be fat. Are you kidding me? This wasn't a struggle for most people. And so if you were so wealthy that you had the ability to overeat, is any of this sounding familiar to what I said earlier? We're all wealthy. If we put our faith and our hope and our strength and our, our riches and our plenty, we've missed the announcement of Christ the Lord. It's a simple diagnostic. Do you find yourself chasing, pursuing, or even just wishing for more power or more status or more money? If so, that may be a sign that you've put your hope in those things. Because you believe that happiness or contentment or peace or whatever is tied to what, what you can get more of. Achievement, influence. See, Jesus came as the Savior, as the Christ, the Messiah, to people who had nothing to offer and because they had nothing to offer, they were in a position to receive what he was offering. They stood empty-handed. And they were invited into a kingdom. And so, as we sang just a few minutes ago, from God our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came. And unto certain shepherds. Why those shepherds? I don't know. Because God chose those shepherds to hear. Unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. He's the Christ. He's not just Jesus. He's the Christ. The anointed one. And he brings us tidings of comfort and joy. So we're going to pray for just a second. We're going to use this verse as a jumping off point for us. Romans 5, 8. Love, love, love this verse. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, hopeless, helpless, hapless, right? Bumbling around, making a mess. We don't measure up on the outside looking in. While all of that was true for us, Christ still died for us. He didn't die for the worthy, because no one's worthy. Well, God, we thank you uh, for the wonderful reality of the Christmas story. As much as we talk about how we revisit it every year and how it becomes familiar to us, the truth is we should revisit it every year. The truth is every day we should celebrate Christmas, not just in the month of December. This is that remarkable of a story. 
Yes, we love the baby in the manger and they're in a guest room and they're in a, in somewhere that is not, is foreign to them, right? They've traveled a long way. Everything about the story is remarkable. The shepherds in the field, all of it. The magi who come later, but maybe most remarkable is that you sent your son as the Messiah to live and die for us while we were still sinners. Remind us today that we ourselves don't have anything to offer you. It's not our goal nor our responsibility to impress you. You just love us anyway. While we were still sinners, you made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Help that be the underpinnings for us this Christmas season. The underpinnings of the magic of Christmas is that, God, you came near. And help that be the, the source of joy for all the traditions and the family time and the school programs and all the things we're going to do. Help us to be driven by this fact, that in you, we have significance. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the manger. And thank you for the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.